the podcast for women in film and television, Austin. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to season two of the Wicked Austin podcast. I'm today's host, Chantal James. This episode is for anyone interested in brushing up on their pitching skills. Today, we have two wonderful industry professionals, Juliet Blake and Heidi Hombocker. Juliet Blake was the head of television at TED for 10 years. She executive produced the second season of TED Talks India Nayabat for the largest TV network in India, Star Plus. She has also produced TED Talks live on Broadway, a PBS television series of one-hour specials shot at New York's Town Hall Theatre. Earlier in her career, she served as president of Jim Henson Television and a senior executive at the National Geographic Channel. She produced the movie The Hundred Foot Journey with Steven Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey, starring Helen Mirren and the late Ampere. Heidi Hombacher is a screenwriter, director, and producer. She is a graduate of the UCLA screenwriting program and works as a story consultant and writer for hire. She is co-founder of Pagecraft, a writing center offering retreats and workshops to help writers realize their creative vision. Heidi has written numerous features, treatments, and TV pilots for various independent producers. She also co-founded the Slamdance Script Clinic and has been a judge for the Slamdance Film Festival Screenwriting Contest, the Page Awards, and the Writers' Lab. All right, well, thank you both so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to have two really wonderful women to talk to about pitching. I want to start with Juliet. Just generally how you got started in the industry and how did you end up living in Austin? I started working in radio because when I was 14, my sister won an Academy Award for costume design. And my entire teen life was, are you as successful as your sister? Are you going to be in the movie business? And I thought, no, I'm going to take a completely different route. So I started in radio, moved to TV, have done film, theater, and web content. So I've done a lot of different things. And I came to Austin for many reasons, principally, I think, because I had a daughter that lived here. But we were living in New York, and I just hate the cold. And I love it here. I'm very happy to be here in Austin. Even with these uh, 105 degree days? I do love it, I have to say. I mean, it is a little too hot at the moment, but I'd still rather be in the heat than the cold. Yeah, I don't blame you. I, I feel the same. I like the cold when I can ski. Exactly. Yeah, when it's exactly. useful. <laughs> well, you've definitely won a lot of hats in your career. Uh, what project or role did you find to be the most challenging and rewarding, would you say? Um, I think two. One was being president of the Jim Henson Company and having responsibility for the Muppet franchise. That was both very rewarding, but also incredibly creative. And then I guess the other one would be when I made the film, The Hundred Foot Journey from a book that I'd optioned. And I thought I would make a tiny little film with friends. And I ended up, as you know, producing it with Steven Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey and Helen Mirren starred in it. And it was such a great experience. There wasn't one negative in the whole making of the movie. It was just an absolute joy. So that was a great thing. That's amazing. And it's that thing where I'm sure the reason why you wanted to make the movie is because it, it brought joy and it was something that inspired you. Well, the book, you know, it's based on a book written by a at that point, a first time author and when I read the story, the, the film is quite different to the book, but I, it really resonated with me because it was about an immigrant family who were forced out of their country because of being attacked, you know, persecuted. And the same thing happened to my family, but not in India, but out of Germany. And so there are lots of things in the book that really resonated with me. And I found it very thought provoking, but I actually never thought that it would be you know, it made an, in, for me, I, I didn't make the money, by the way, it was my first film. But the fact that the first feature I did made, I think, $90 million is a bit of a shocker. And so everybody on the film, Helen Mirren, all the actors, uh, Steven Spielberg, so gracious, Oprah Winfrey. It was just a fantastic experience. And I don't think one I would ever be able to repeat. Plus, we were in France in the most beautiful countryside making a film and then some time in India so it was just a perfect experience. Oh, 
sounds magical, honestly. How, and so you worked for TED for a really long time. We did, and that was also great. I mean, that was, a, again, a creative, wonderful experience, particularly when we did, you know, I, I managed to persuade the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to do TED on Broadway. And we did six nights of TED in a Broadway theater. Well, the Town Hall Theater, which is just on the edge of Broadway. And it was just so much fun doing that with lots of different speakers and musicians. And I, I loved it. So I, I'm, I feel very fortunate. And a lot of it is luck, you know. I mean, it's not, yeah, you need to have drive and all the rest of it. But a lot of it is honestly just luck and not giving up. Yeah. Believing in yourself, huh? Well, believing in the projects. I mean, there are many times when I've not believed in myself at all, but I've just believed in the content and reached out either by pitching uh, to people, telling them why this is such an important project. But I guess we'll get on to all of that later. But um, yeah, absolutely. We certainly will. And Heidi, um, tell us a little bit about your career as a writer and what was the inspiration for you and your husband to start Pagecraft? Well, first of all, I just want to say, um, I feel like I'm learning at the feet of Juliet Blake. That's I'm just amazed to be on with you. And uh, I, I came to, to LA to go to UCLA for screenwriting. My husband and I met there um, and this was in the early aughts. And we came out and kind of realized UCLA is great at teaching you how to churn out a script, but most of writing is rewriting and being able to take notes and being able to recalibrate and respond to the industry and just respond to your manager, respond to, you know, whatever with different things and learn how to thread different things too. And we, we didn't, we realized we didn't know how to do that. They had, we hadn't been taught how to do any of that. So we thought, well, there's something missing in the marketplace. We need to start that. We need to be able to provide that education for writers so that writers can, you know, you learn that you have the basics, but then you can figure out how to take things to the next level and actually get your work to be the thing that the producer wants to option from you or get that job staffed position in a writer's room or whatever it is. Since and you see, I think that's amazing that you do that because having worked with writers, it's a very fragile experience. You know, you're writing a script, but then when you get notes from a producer, a producers need to be told how to give notes. Yes. You know, that That's also a big piece of it. But I think actually you're right. You come out of college, you may well be able to write a good script, but taking notes and rewriting and constantly rewriting and staying with the project, I would not have the staying power to do that because it requires such a skill. And I admire you greatly for doing that. So um, it's a two-way thing. So it is absolutely a two-way thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, I think it's a hard truth that people, you know, you don't know, you come out of school and you think, I know everything. I know what I'm doing. And it's like, no, oh my God, you have no idea yet. Like your first draft is probably terrible. And, but that's something on the page, but now you need to learn how to shape it and figure out what's the motif and what's the theme and what's, what are all these little pieces that now you can figure out how to bring out. You can't do that until you have a crappy draft down on the page and then you can start shaping it and making it beautiful. But we weren't taught how to do that. And I was just going to say, and also who to listen to. I mean, yes, that's really you'll get, hard. You'll get so many notes from so many different people. And if you're working with a studio where you have these young executives who are being paid an inordinate amount of money, they feel that they have to give notes. Yes. But the notes aren't necessarily, they don't always make sense, you know. So, I think you can have your vision trampled and pulled in a, a less than advantageous direction if you don't know where to, when to listen and when to reject. And it's hard because in the hierarchy, sometimes you're not in a position to reject a terrible note and you have to try to execute it and, or at least say that you tried, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't always work. Yeah. It's tough to cull through all those. And, and I think what, one of the things I always tell my writers is, well, even if it's a terrible note, like the, the, the example we always give is they told you to put talking monkeys in because everything is better with talking monkeys. But if you get that note and it's obviously a terrible note, what were they bumping on that made them suggested in the first place? What's the note behind the note? And sometimes if you can at least get, oh, it somehow wasn't exciting enough. That's why they thought monkeys would be good. Well, how can I make, how can I, you know, streamline things down, trim some beats and get to the action a little more in a more driving way that addresses the note in a way that makes it better rather than sticking talking monkeys in. So coming with the reason for the note can be more valuable, even if it's a terrible note. 
That, and that's what I love about Pagecraft uh, workshops is that you give tangible, like fe workable feedback of like wh what to do next to elevate your script. It's not just like these like weird notes. There's actual like information behind it to help you break it down as a writer. Oh, thank you. Yes. I think it's because we were forced to pull apart structure from so many different places, both story structure and character structure to figure out why things work or don't work that now it's all kind of codified in my mind it's just really easy to look at a script and go oh well you just need this or your character isn't grounded or this this action is coming from writer's convenience instead of character need that's never going to work why why does the character need that to happen oh well i don't know she just showed up well no let's backtrack and then you need a scene earlier that shows why she needs that then i'll believe this but not just because you stuck it in <laughs> so, once um, i understand that it makes it easier for me to then teach it to you yeah Absolutely. It also makes it easier for you to understand why other people's scenes don't work because you're like, oh, yeah. you're missing this, this crucial part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, what kind of workshops does Pagecraft offer? Well, we, we started this business exactly backwards. We started with our flagship offering, which is writing two week writing retreats in Italy, because who doesn't want to go to Italy for two weeks and work on a script? So we started off doing that in 2008 and we just, we did that for years. And then we had just started doing smaller weekend retreats here in California and once a week classes for like a 10 week curriculum here in person, right when the pandemic started, we were like four sessions into a 10 week session and went, oh no. So we went online and we went on zoom and here we are, we now offer concept of pages, which is our basic, you have a new idea and you need to figure out how to get it on the page foundational work. And then we have writing is rewriting where you take a script you already have, and we sort of pull it apart and look and make sure all those things are there. And then we have just a bunch of fun little things. Like we have a, a legal expert that's going to come on and do a avoiding common pitfalls of in writing and like how not to get yourself screwed over by a bad contract and all that kind of stuff. And little one-offs that are kind of fun that we're always throwing new stuff in. So it's so valuable. I mean, it is so valuable. I wish more writers took those courses, I have to say. I do too. Uh, it's, it's so frustrating to watch something on screen and you're like, oh God, if they just came to me first, I could have fixed that, that, and that, and this would be a good movie or a good show. You know, I had a, I had a project not too long ago that I was working on and the writer delivered a really good first draft of the first act. And they were very, very late in delivering the script. But I was heartened by the first act, but the studio wanted to see the full script. And I said, it's coming. It's going to be really good. And then they delivered all three acts and it was a major disappointment. And it was on a project that I really cared about. Oh, no. And I spent oh, no. a lot of, and I knew the material so well. And I'd been quite clear what I felt the film should be. And when I sent the notes to the writer and I had a producer's draft coming my way, the response that I got was, you're stressing me out. Oh, dear. And my notes were not unkind. Mm -hmm. They were very detailed. And I was told, I'm just going to do the top level notes. And the project died. Yeah, of and, course it did. And it was heartbreaking to me. I mean, it, oh. I, I will resurrect it somewhere else. But it was, you know, and by that time, there's costs against it and all the rest mm. of it. And we could have done another draft with the with the writer, you know, um, the studio was willing to do another draft. And I said no, because it had ended up being a very disappointing experience. And if you on a first producer's draft are told you're stressing me out and you're not going to yeah. do my notes, yeah, then what the, what is, what's the point of continuing? Oh, that's tough. Anything you have to have such a thick skin in this industry. And it's especially as a creative, it's the hardest thing because you're pouring your soul onto the page and then getting notes that trample all over your little heart and soul. And you have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with it again and again and again. And saying you're stressing me out after I'm sorry, like this but is even, a long job for even, you. <laughs> even if it if it had been, I don't agree with a lot of your notes. Can we talk about them? Yeah. But it, it was, I mean, it was, it was so disappointing. Oh, that's, I'm so sorry. Um, but you know, you probably dodged a bullet by not going forward with that writer. Cause it only would well, have gone. There's no way it would have got worse, not better. But, but, you know, I really admire the fact that you are, you know, everybody is a business person. 
right? So if you're a writer, you're not just a writer writing in the clouds, you have to be a business person and you have to understand the business side of it. As a producer, you've certainly got to understand the business side of it. But I always feel that I'm not a, a line producer who necessarily goes through the budget, you know, every nickel and dime. I'm a creative producer and I want to be involved creatively in my projects. So you have to find or put together a team of people where you can collaborate. Yes. And, and it's you find that pretty early on if you're working with somebody who's not a writing collaborator. Yes. But otherwise, finding it out late, late in the game is always painful. Yeah. It's, and expensive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's probably a, a good time to springboard into into a little chat about pitching since we're talking about how to collaborate and how to how to listen and do all the good things. I know that pitching can feel awkward and nerve wracking. And I thought maybe we could just break it down a little bit and talk about nuts and bolts of what makes a good pitch. Heidi, I know that you have a particular format that you teach at PageCraft. Are you able to share a little bit about this of like what you recommend it would get included in in a good pitch? Well, sure. Um, And I'm really curious to hear what Julia's going to have to say, but For me, the the overarching thing is it's not the project they're buying you, you know, so if you go in and like Juliet was saying, if you believe in what you're doing and you have that fire for this project, you're going to get them, whoever's in the room with you excited about the project. So that's the first piece in terms of nuts and bolts. I always recommend, you know, probably start with the log line. What is the story? And then we have sort of the, the pillars of like, what are the big turning points in your script? Those can be really helpful to mention, you know, those big structural points that tell us what the story is, but almost more important than that, I always, I talk to people about including why you, like why you, why now, why is this script important and why are you the right writer to bring it to life? And usually that's the most interesting part of whatever the person says. So what usually happens is someone comes in and they're like, okay, so my log line is, you know, uh, this guy and outer space and um, aliens and, and then they have a battle and whatever and then they tell a little bit longer version of the story and then they're like and I and, and I reason I wanted to do this is because my friend was abducted by aliens when we were seven and then they were like wait what start with that like that now I'm really interested because you've hooked me with why it matters to you so I'm I'm always telling people like think about starting with why it matters to you. What's the thing that makes it stand out? Because anybody can write a story about aliens and battles and whatever the stupid example is, but you're writing it because it's special to you for some reason. There's It sparks something in you. So start with that and then people are engaged and then you can tell us the rest and leave room for us to answer questions or to ask questions. Don't answer, don't tie everything up in a bow because you want the people leaning forward and going, but what about this? But what about this? You know, don't make it too neat and tidy. And that's not a formula. Maybe it's better for you to start with your logline because it's a really engaging story and end with why it's engaging to you because it's like a one-two punch. There's no right or wrong. It's just, you have to kind of go with your gut, I think, and test it on people to, to pitch your friends and ask them what, what struck them the most and you know, practice, practice. Don't walk into that room cold and just go, well, I know my story, so it's fine. Like, no, practice. People are out here trying really hard to get where you are getting if you're getting in that room. So you better respect it and practice. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly with practice your pitch. I mean, I've I have been pitched to many times and I've been sitting in the pitch. And of course, you take maybe 10 pitches a day, you know, (laughs) or more. And if you pitch something and and it's, say, four o'clock in the afternoon and that somebody is pitching to you and the story is just not tracking to you you're more likely to go, this is never going to work in your brain. You wouldn't say that out loud than thinking, well, I could ask them what the second act is because it's not clear to me at all. Or who is this person? Because you've not described them well to me. I always believe that the art of a good pitch, whether it's for a TED talk, whether it's for a movie or a TV series, is much more to the, you need to be a really great storyteller. And you need to be able to engage people as if you're sitting down telling them the most remarkable story. And then, you know, I want to tell you, you know, I'm passionate about this because is, you know, this is a story about this family who, whatever it might be. And so for me, it's, it's storytelling and then listening to questions. 
and not being defensive. And so if you, I mean, I, when I went in and pitched a, a project not too long ago, I pitched it and then I had a, I can't actually tell you what it is because it's confidential, but at the end of it, I said, and that person used to live next door to me. And they went, you are kidding. And I went, no, they did. And they went, that's unbelievable. So you know them really well. And I, I know them really well. I know everything there is to know about them. And that was like, oh my God, that's so powerful, you know, because it was a very painful, big, big story. And that was what sold it. So if you can have a personal connection to something or the reason this is so important to you, as you've just said, Heidi, is that you stand a better chance of at least wetting the appetite of somebody to know more. And then listening to what people are asking you and never answering defensively. You know, you don't always have to say, well, that's an interesting point, but you just say, oh, I probably missed this out or be self-deprecating a little bit. Don't blame the other person who you want to buy your project. <laughs> that happens, you know. That's awkward and also very good advice. Um, it sounds like a lot of the times writers, they sit in a room and that's what they're doing. They're not really performers but it's almost like you have to have a little bit of a performative shtick to your pitch so that you can hold, like be interesting and, and get people drawn into your project. How do you do that? How, what is practice? Practice. practice. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I were, you know, when I was working at Ted and I was, I still remember when talking to people, I remember exactly what the first line of certain pitches were. So I'm looking at my bookcase that's right next to me here. And there's an educator called Nadia Lopez. And I said to her, she said, I want to give a TED talk. I said, what's it about? She said, I want to talk about the fact I opened a school to close a prison. And I went, what? She goes, I work in Brownsville in Brooklyn. It's the most dangerous borough of New York. There's a lot of crime in schools and children who go through the educational system in Brownsville, a high percentage end up in prison. So I, I have opened a school to close a prison oh. and, and her talk was amazing. And then I can think of a bunch of other TED talks where I've been looking for people or, or I found somebody and, you know, this woman called Rita Pearson said, every child needs a champion. And really clear, right? Really, really clear. Another Indian woman um, who said, don't give poor advice to poor people. And then rolled out the story, right? And I remember those lines and I remember the talks because they knew they had something. And, and for me, it's like, how would you describe your pitch in two, three sentences? You can't do the whole movie or the whole TV show, but if you have a gut as to why you are going to tell this story, you should be able to say it in a few lines. And it's a very good exercise to give people. Yes. I was always told to, to invite friends to coffee and then pitch to them, but see when they stop listening. Mm. You know, like when they become disinterested, that's when you've lost them. I mean, that's when you've, lo you've lost the room also. So it's just a good exercise. And, and to be aware of the fact that you're not the only person pitching is that, you know, if your appointment's at 11, there were probably two before you. If it's four in the afternoon, then they're probably really ready to, they will have had lunch, they will have been in meetings. You have to realize that there is, people are so busy and you have to bring something that is a little bit special. And not everybody is great at pitching, but if you're not great at pitching, then, you know, I've taken pictures where people have come in that have been very introverted and they've had note cards in their hands and it's fine. And they go, excuse me, I just want to, you know, I'm, this is not my favorite thing to do. I don't love to pitch, but I do have something I'm really passionate about and I'm just going to use my cards. And I've been really respectful of that because if you're an introvert and, and it's, it feels like a total nightmare, but you still love your project. It's okay to have prompts, you know, it really is. It's much better to have prompts than screw it up. That's actually really good advice. 
Because it's almost like you you have so much that you want to say and then it's you only have a certain amount of time and it's almost scripted and I'm sure that you're in the room and you get nervous and then you don't say half of what you want to say and you miss the important points. So having some note cards could be really helpful for, for some people. And practice, you know, even the best way I find to practice is by walking is by walking and telling yourself the story and not always doing it the same way, but changing it a little bit so that you know it backwards, forwards, inside out, and then trying it out and doing it not in a different voice, but, you know, I'm excited to tell you this. I walk down the street and I'll be pitching myself, you know, and then trying it out with other people is invaluable. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is the, it's the, the trial, it's the listening, you know, seeing when other people tune out, but just... Because I've had the, several friends that have pitched really high level people and they're like, I don't even remember what I said in the room. Like it's like you white out and you're like, you're, so you're on autopilot and then you don't even know that you missed something out until later. So that's again, why practicing is so important because then it'll be in you and you don't have to worry about, oh my God, I forgot to tell them the main character is also the sister. Oh no. You know, like you just, it'll come out. But you can't send an email afterwards and say, I forgot something. No. You just, you know, that's not going to work. So often you've got one chance and it does feel nerve wracking. So the more you are prepared, the better. Is there anything you would, I guess we've probably touched this, but high, like what you highly recommend including in, in your pitch or, or things not to include? I think it's different if you're a writer, then you probably do want to talk about where your act breaks are or at least the arc of the story. I don't think you need to go in. I think really, really experienced writers don't go in and talk about the inciting incident and where the act breaks are or any of that. But you do want to take people on a journey during the pitch. And maybe, I mean, I never like it when people say things like, this is a cross between this movie and that movie. I find that to be, I just want it to be its own movie. I, I don't know how you feel about that, Heidi, because people do do that. They'll come in and go, think about Raiders of the Lost Ark and blurted it, whatever it might be. And I always think, you know what, that doesn't work for me because you may have that specific in your brain for some reason, but it doesn't really work for the person that you're pitching to. Interesting. I mean, I think it's good because some things that like if you apply to certain labs or certain, they ask you what the comps are. So I right. think it's good to know that and to have it, but that's, but that's good to hear that. Like maybe don't feel the need to say it. Well, I think maybe they are looking for, I, I am by no means an expert on any of this. So I I'm just giving you my perspective on it, yeah, yeah. but, but I think that if, if the labs are saying they want to know that, then they know better than I do. Um, I just find that there are so many different nuances. If it's, you know, two biographical pictures, then, then you might want to say, you know, it has the integrity or the, or the comedic timing of this movie, mm. but the character development of this movie. But just to, just to compare two movies to each other, I want to know, well, where does yours fit in in between? And then I get off to a tangent before the pitch, you know. <laughs> I, but that could just be me. Well, what do you mean? Which bit is that film? I mean, that could just be me, actually. So, I don't know. No, but I think that's good. I mean, that's like the person has to be listening even to the unspoken cues of the person they're pitching to. Like somebody who's green and younger, like maybe is like, oh, God, I don't, you know, maybe they want the comps because they're not creative enough to think for themselves because they're going to have to go tell their boss, here's the thing. But somebody that's more got more experience, like, yeah, you probably don't need the comps because you can see it. from. But just if they're using team. comps, they have to be prepared to explain why. why. Yeah. Not just to say it's it's a cross between sideways and man on the moon or whatever, you know, and you think, well, OK, why? Or unless yeah. it's super clear and it isn't always super clear. No, but I like what you were saying about the why like the character development of this but the sort you know that that's that gives me much more of a sense yeah. of why I picked these movies because it's all about conveying that your confidence in the project and that you know everything you're talking about so if you're being that specific about why I picked these comps then I'm conveying to you even more you can trust me as a storyteller I'm going to take you on a journey I'm going to hit everything you need to know and it's going to be I'm going to be worth your while to invest in my project is going to be worth your while to invest in right you have to give a level of confidence because 
whether it's an indie movie or a studio picture, everything costs a fortune these days. And as we know from Netflix, that is laying off a lot of people right now, money's tight. And so you really have to know, have your wits about you when you're pitching. Yeah. I think that just that knowing, especially knowing that they're getting 10 pitches a day or whatever, that you're not there. They want you to be good. They want you to be the thing that they can go, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. And they're tired. They've heard everything. Like, don't waste their time. Yeah. Yes. And then, you know, when you, I don't know, when you are pitching, are you normally pitching to a room full of people or one or two people or what's been your experience? Both Mine of you has been one or two generally. Right. Same. And I also, and it's, you know, it's been online for me because that's kind of when I started pitching was during the pandemic. So I would love to be in a room because then you're feeding off energy or, or the lack of it. You kind of know where you stand. Otherwise it's, yeah. A yeah, tricky it's really to... hard in this virtual world, but hopefully people will be back taking pictures in person soon. I know. I think so. It feels like things are, things are moving that way. I hope so. I certainly hope so. What about you? Are you, is your experience groups, single people pitching? It, it, it depends. I mean, I've done both. It's rarely to one person. It's often to two or three people. And if it's people that you've worked with before, then it's easier in some ways, but harder in others because they're kind of waiting to see what you've got next. And so either the expectations are really high. I've definitely been in pitches where I felt they're a courtesy pitch. Mm-hmm. And that's very annoying. You know, when you, you, you've you done a project, they, they're happy with it, but you have to bring them something so out of this world if they're going to pick something else up. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, it's never easy, but I think you have to just enjoy it for what it is. And also, I'm a great believer if something doesn't go well, which sometimes it doesn't, use that to your best advantage. So here's some here's a little trick, a pitching trick. So if you're going out with a TV show and you know that you're going to pitch to, say, six different places put the one that you really don't want to sell the show to first. And and even though you've practiced with your friends and you'll be in all these different rooms across all of Los Angeles, in the valley, in the city, (laughs) wherever, put them in the order so that the last two or three that you're pitching to, you've really honed the pitches. And the only way you can, I mean, if you've got friends in the business, great, but if you don't and you're rehearsing with people who don't really understand story structure or storytelling in a great way, the more you pitch and the more feedback you get from people, the better your pitch will become. And there's just definitely some rooms that you walk into and you think, oh, I really like these people. This is a good room and they're really receptive. And that makes you better at your pitch. You can just tell sometimes. I've walked into rooms thinking this is never going to work. And you know sometimes by how long they keep you waiting. You know, in LA, you can be waiting for 20 minutes and another pitch will come out of the same conference room you're about to go into. And it's icky, you know, but that's how it is. That's the business, you know. It's the same for actors and auditioning. And like you get someone comes out and looks exactly like you and you can actually hear them in the room and they're all laughing together and they get this warm reception. And then you walk in and they're like, you've never read with this casting director before. And they're just like so dry. And you're like, oh, okay, right. This feels great. (laughs) It's it's, it's the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, I don't want to sound negative though, because I think, you know, when you do sell a project, it's the most exciting thing in the world. You know, it is so, such a great feeling. And, and you know, when I sold the 100 foot journey, it was a long journey. And I'm not going to bore you with the whole story, at least not on this podcast. But, but you know, the first, when, when I knew that it was happening, I had to ask to be the producer on the set. And it was like, well, you've only done television. And I went, you know what? I have only done TV, but I've produced a good number of hundred hours of TV. And they said, well, we'll think about it. And then they kept, and then they called me and said, okay, yeah, you can be on, you can be the producer on the set. And, and I worked so hard on it because I cared so deeply about it. Um, and we had a great line producer who I loved and, 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 you can't try and do everything, right? 
And as a screenwriter or, you know, TV, well, still screenwriting, you may well be replaced or rewritten. Don't worry about it. You've had the experience, right? You learn from all of that. You have to serve an apprenticeship and you should not worry about whatever that role is. And if you write something and you believe in it, but your dialogue isn't that sharp yet and somebody comes in to do a polish, learn from it. Don't be freaked out by it. Be thrilled that it's got that far. Yes. Yeah, it's a collaboration, right? Everything is. Mm-hmm. Everything is a collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, I always say that to my writers. It's like, this is the weirdest art form there is because it's the only one that you, it's a total collaboration. It's not like sculpture or painting where it's just you and you decide when it starts and stops. And it's a collaboration. And half the time you'll never, ever meet your collaborators, especially for writers. You know, you do this thing and then you hand it off and you may never be on set or never see, meet the director or the actors and you have no control over what they then do with it. So it's I find weird... that so heartbreaking, I must say. I mean, when I bought the, bought the rights to the, the book of The Hundred Foot Journey, I said to the author, I said, I will only have one project. And he had offers from other many other people who were mu- a much bigger deal than me. I said, I will keep you involved every step of the way, whether it's good news, bad news or whatever it is. And I did. And I kept them involved. I, every time I went to L.A. for meetings, I'd call him. I told him what had happened whether it was good or bad. And and then he was invited to come to France to be on the set. He met Oprah Winfrey, who had come for one day, and he happened to be there at the same day staying with us. And it was just wonderful, you know, to be able to share that with the writer. And then the screenwriter, you know, I was constantly talking to, but he came just for the press, uh, you know, recording of press materials right at the end, uh, but did a fantastic job, so. It's such an interesting process to turn a book into a screenplay. Yeah. How do you, how do you decide like what themes, like what, what the important thread is because you can't get it all in. There's just, there's no way. If, I mean, the writer on the hundred foot journey was such a seasoned writer. It was Steve Knight Mm -hmm. and, and he was actually chosen by Steven Spielberg. And so I had breakfast with him fairly early on and they gave him a two picture deal of which mine was the lesser of the two projects. And I had breakfast with him and I told him how passionate I was about the project and offered him as much help as I could give him. And he said, he was very honest with me. He said, it's going to take me a long time to write this. He said, I've got other projects stacked up in advance. And I said, I don't care. I was, I had a job at the time. I was working for national geographic And I said, I would rather have you write it because I know you're such a good writer than, and he had such a good pitch on the material. You know, I said, I would rather wait for you, which not everybody can do. But to me, it was such a passion project. And the minute I got the script and I read it, I had this crazy feeling that it was going to happen. There were certain touchstones that he'd written into the script that he didn't know very much about me, but I had a very similar touchstone in my life. And it was almost like a kismet thing. And I called the executive at Amblin or then DreamWorks. And I said, I suddenly realized I'm not sure I know how to read a script and whether I think, whether I have the right seeing I've only worked in TV to this point, but I think that this is a brilliant script. And she said, you're right, it is. So, and it was just a roller coaster of excitement. How much fun. Yeah. And a beautiful movie. Thank you. It was great fun to do. Yeah, I can imagine. What are you both currently working on? I'm writing a book Mm -hmm. and I am also working on a really exciting new project. I've taken a job, which I wasn't intending to do, as the creative director on a new educational platform. So it's very different and it's a fascinating process. So I'm doing that right now. Is that based in Austin or are you having no, to it's, Well, it's, it's um, I'm working mainly remotely, but there'll be trips to New York and LA and various other places. Exciting. What about you, Heidi? What are you working on? Oh my gosh. Well, in, in addition to all of our writing retreats and classes, uh, one of my scripts, a feature of mine, is currently with some some big producers who are um, budgeting it out and seeing what it would take to then 
take it out and try to get it funded. So um, I'm really excited about that because that's a script that I I wrote the script in a week and then spent a year and a half rewriting it and you know that's layering so it and making great. it better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just actually got the rights to a book that I am turning into a limited series. So that's really it feels very grown up. It's the first time I've I've gotten I love rights. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. So I'm doing a whole lot of research around that's the subject right now. And um, otherwise just doing more filmmaking. I have a film that just won some stuff in the festival circuit right now. And it inspired me so much that I am now starting two new short documentaries. What's um, that film about? That film is about my friend's rescue horse. She rescued a horse that was being abused and she spent years tracking down where he could have come from and what his background was subsequently got divorced because her husband was like you know it's me or the horse and she chose the horse and um she moved across country she moved to oklahoma because it turned out that's where the horse was from and found out that he'd been stolen and he's part of a very rare group of mustangs and brought him back to the man who stewards the herd what's left of the herd and it was the reunion story of the horse and the man so Sounds beautiful. It's it's, yeah. oh. it's a tearjerker. We're, we're actually. I got goosebumps. I did. I I I cried a little bit, but I'm pregnant, and everything makes me cry <laughs> at the moment. So, <laughs> not to take the value away from the story. I yes, no, it should make beautiful. you cry. It should make you cry. And we're we're actually working on an adaptation, um, a fic, like a fictionalized feature version adaptation of that. I was so. going to say, it sounds like it could be a beautiful movie. Uh, yeah, long form movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a real life black beauty. Yeah. Oh, how, how amazing. This is one of my favorite questions. Your favorite piece of advice that has helped you most in your career? It's a big one. You can have it, a minute. It to is a big one. <laughs> I have, I have an answer to that. Please go. And I'll, t- it's a bit of a name drop, but I'll tell you who gave me this advice. The advice was never pretend that you know something that you don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know. And that came from Sean Connery, who was a great mentor of mine. That's wow. I love that. And I I think we, well, I feel like as a woman, I I am guilty of that because, you know, sometimes you're working in a man's world and you want to feel confident and you want to feel like you know what everyone else knows, but sometimes you don't. So asking and getting information is really important. So important. Well, especially as an actor, right? They always say, you always hear those stories about, well, you know how to ride a horse, right? Yes, of course I do. You get the role and you better go learn how to ride horses real fast. So what, what's yours, Heidi? Oh my gosh. I remember a long time ago, a friend saying, you know, if you can do anything else, just go do it. You, if you have to do this, then you should do this writing, acting, whatever it is in this is, it's such a brutal industry and it's so it chews you up and spits you out. And if you don't have that passion and that like, I'm, I'm here, this is my purpose on this planet is to tell stories. It's just not going to be worth the heartbreak. So just to stick with it and you get kicked down and you just get back up again and yeah, so take your time, lick your wounds, but you just keep coming back. If it's not the right time for your story now, it will be, it's just a matter of the, if it's a matter of timing and you just keep believing that this is a worthwhile story. And my, my personal passion is helping other people tell their stories. I don't, they don't need to be my stories, but, but I really love helping people tell their stories. And Me too, with my classes. That's what I love to teach. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and, you know, under helping people through the heartbreak of, I just had a, a session earlier, but before this was, was some of my writers and the one was just lamenting, getting knocked down again of this beautiful script she's been working on for a while. And, and, and she's just like, well, what if it never happens? And I said, first of all, if it never happens, you'll write something else. Because if you if, if that's if this is the end for you, if you're going to go take your ball and go home because this one didn't get whatever accolades you felt it should, then you should go home because that's it. Right. Like, but if you can get, get back up again and come back, then you should be here. And, and I, I keep saying, look at Queen's Gambit. He started that 20 years ago. And everyone was like, chess, girls, blah, you know, and then. It just was timing. It's like eventually the time was right for that story and look at it. So there are also writers who have um, written a ton of things and and 
there's a theory that it takes seven years before you uh, seven years of writing mm-hmm. before you really can put together really excellent scripts. And then what? Yes. I know I know very well known women writers who've kept absolutely everything that they've written, and they go back to the drawer full of scripts and they mm-hmm. pull them out, and they then have the confidence to improve them and nothing is ever wasted nothing nothing is wasted so even if that movie never happens you'll draw from it you'll find dialogue or stage directions or characters or plot line and you'll use them in something else if they're that great yeah yeah and it all makes you a better writer yeah let yeah exactly let it make you let it make you better right Mm -hmm. yes for sure Mm. yeah I just have that with the project of mine that should have gone and then didn't and it was heartbreaking and i just thought i can't believe i have to let this one go right now but you know what i'm a better writer because i went through the fire with that one and it made my my script that's currently out with these producers i wrote i was a better writer to do that and i wouldn't have been otherwise like master's degree every time you do one (laughs) such hard work for writers yeah it really is but on a on a lighter note it makes you better, right? Yeah, and for sure. You you learn and you get better. It's the same with everything. And and yeah. I had 10 years, 10 years in the making of anything that you try new to be to be good at, to be an expert at, you need to do it consistently for, for seven to 10 years. Yeah. So, well, and that I wish I'd understood that younger because I only, you know, you only ever see people once they succeed. And as a young person in middle school, high school, when I was like, oh, I want to do this, I think you only ever see people succeed. You don't see them putting in the work. So it, it looks like there's this uncrossable bridge where it's like, I can't do that. Therefore, I just can't do it. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, no, th- there's all this stuff they did to get there. And it helps to have a mentor or a you know school or a training program that a theater company, whatever, that believes in you and goes, there is a bridge here it is. And you got to put in your seven years or whatever. Yeah. That's like when you look at someone's IMDb credits and you say, okay, so like you're very, very successful right now, but where did you come from? And you can see the bills and it's, it's it's there on paper to remind yourself that you're not just going to make one short film and then get to produce or direct a feature. Like you probably need to do some more work than that scroll all the way down to when the roles were orderly number two yes and, yeah you know, guy in background and you're like okay that's right they survived on ramen for for some time as well exactly that is exactly correct uh well ladies it's been so wonderful having you both uh to chat to today thank you so much for your time thank you and i wish you both huge luck Thank you. And Thank you. Get together in person at some point. Oh, yes. I would love that. It's exactly. been just delightful hearing your stories, Juliet. And, and thank you, Chantal, so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. And you too. So take care. Have a rest of a lovely day. Yes. Vice versa. Enjoy. Bye, Bye ladies. Bye. If you want to continue listening for more episodes, be sure to subscribe. While you're at it, rate and review so we can get the attention of new listeners like you. Special thanks to Austin Public for their support. Don't forget to follow us on social at wift underscore Austin. Also, check out the new and improved website, wiftaustin.org. And if you're not already a member, Wift Austin offers some great networking and educational opportunities to improve your career. Thanks for listening. What's up, you guys? It's Summer, and I'm back with a brand new movie review. This week, I'm going to talk about the movie Hope Floats, made in 1998, starring Sandra Bullock playing Bertie Pruitt, one of my favorites, Harry Connick Jr. playing Justin Matisse, Gina Rollins playing Ramona Calvert, Mae Whitman playing Bernice Pruitt, and my other favorite, Kathy Najimy playing Tony Post directed by Forrest Whitaker and written by Steven Rogers. I really did like this film. Um, I don't know why it's labeled a comedy. Uh, oh, it's drama romance. thought it was labeled a comedy. That's my bad. Because there is no comedy in this movie. I'm very familiar with Sandra Bullock's work and very familiar with Mae Whitman and Kathy Najimy. I've seen Harry Connick Jr. in Law & Order SVU. I'm sorry, that's all I've seen him in that I 
can think of at the moment. But um, everyone did such a great job. I really, really, really 15 times really liked this movie. As If you are somebody who moved out of your hometown, went made a life for yourself, and then came back to your hometown and are just like really ashamed to move back, like, oh my gosh, I made this life and I don't want to move in, in with my parents or in this case with her mother. And especially if there are people still from your past who live in your hometown who are just shaming you for being back, like you're here too. I mean, why are you shaming me? We both live in this town now. I mean, <laughs> doesn't make any sense. That's kind of what happens after Bertie Pruitt, played by Sandra Bullock, goes on to this makeover show, the Tony Post show, played by Kathy Najimy. She gets this really horrible surprise that her husband was cheating on her. And so she moves back to her hometown of Smithville, which is in Texas. Um, And this was actually filmed in Texas, which was awesome. That's why I watched it. And it's just going through all of these emotions of being ashamed on national TV, being ashamed to move home. She's a single mother now with a young daughter and also going through the daughter's emotions and trying to do everything on her own while also trying to live up to these expectations of her mother. And if anyone has any experience in that, please watch carefully. Um, Oh my gosh, please watch carefully. I want to talk about Mae Whitman for a second because her performance as I've seen so many things that she's been in as an adult and as like, I guess a older teen or young adult. And at first I was like, there's no way that's her. What? And I was like, Oh my God, it's her. Um, She did so good as such a little girl, like she and her emotions. And there's a part in the movie where she is like begging her mom to get back with her dad like just forgive him everything's gonna be fine just just want my parents back together and it took her time to realize that's not going to happen and her dad isn't this amazing person that she once thought um which is really it was probably so hard to come to that conclusion but to come to that conclusion at her age at her character's age is just like I can't imagine but everyone did such a great job and I thought it was a really good movie so sad so very sad if you want to watch the film it is on stars and Amazon for blu-ray and dvd and also for Amazon prime video so highly recommend you watch it that is all I have for you today and thanks so much I hope you have a great day This episode of the WIFT Austin podcast was produced and hosted by Chantel James, Ai Vong, and Samantha Ray Lopez. The showrunner is Chantel James. Our editors are Shannon Steffen, Valerie Torres, and Carla Rivera. Summer Hart is our movie review critic. Marketing is done by Carla Rivera and Tori Rose. You can find us on the web at WIFTAustin.org and on social media at WIFT underscore Austin. Thanks for listening, everybody.